All right, for, so I wanna start by thanking um, the guests that we have here today um, and, and those that are visiting. It's such a pleasure to have y'all here. Uh, my friend James Lewis and uh, Pastor Kindred and members of Paradise that came. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. Um, we're blessed to have you here and, and I, I feel so supported in this moment. So thanks for coming. And to those who attend Bethany, I'm also supported by y'all as well. So um, appreciate having y'all here. So I'd like to use this as a subject from which to preach today a question that's honestly been on my mind for some time now. It's a question that causes my soul to shudder, a question that keeps my mind awake late into the night. And I hope this morning in our time together that we will consider this question seriously and honestly assess where we're at um, because it's, it's, it's one of the biggest questions as we just saw um, the, the uh, man Jesus was talking to talk about. And that question is, do I truly love my neighbor in a Christ-like way? Or more broadly, do we as a church love our neighbors and show Christ's light to the world? So today, today I want to look at three aspects of this question. The first is, what does it look like to actually be a Christ-like neighbor? And we're going to look at an example of that. The second is that the question that this man asked, who are our neighbors? And third, what steps can we take to be Christ-like neighbors? So I, again, I want to pause real quick and give a disclaimer that I am not a pastor. I'm a middle school history teacher at a small private non-religious school in Kirkland. I'm not really an expert in anything. I know generally a lot about some small things, but I'm not an expert. I haven't published any articles or written any books, gone to seminary. Um, and so what I'm going to share today are lessons that I'm still actively learning as well. Um, so if anything I say comes off as, as me knowing uh, <laughs> this as to be true in my complete life, um, just ignore that. Uh, now, I have spent a fair amount of time reading the Bible and studying history of, of people in this land we now call the United States, um, but I still have a lot more to learn. So uh, I just want to lay that out there to start that, um, you know, I feel privileged to be here in this position, and um, I'm a layperson. And so since, since I'm a layperson, I'm going to kind of lean on Jesus and um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, to do a good portion of the heavy, like, scriptural lifting this morning as we impact what it means to be a neighbor. So let's jump right in. Again, our questions are, what does it look like to be uh, and require us to be Christ-like in our neighbor, neighborliness? Who are our neighbors? And what steps can we take to be Christ-like neighbors? Uh, we're going to be looking at Dr. King's final public address, which took place on April 3rd of 1968 in Memphis, Memphis Tennessee. It's known as the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. Um, and in Matthew 7, 16 through 20, Jesus talks about how we will know a tree by its fruit. And it's evident that by the fruit that's produced by Dr. King and thousands of others in the civil rights movement, that they deeply understood what it meant to live lives focused on God and their neighbors. It makes sense in our timing as well, because again, last Sunday, while it was Easter and while we celebrated Christ's resurrection, marked also the 53rd anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So most people know Dr. King. So we're going to start with a little bit of history first, and then we're going to jump into uh, looking at what actually happens in Dr. King's final speech. And so most people know Dr. King for his I Have a Dream speech on the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C. on a hot summer, August 28th day in 1963. Pictures and videos of that speech show him surrounded by hundreds of thousands of cheering marchers. And the quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, 
but by the content of their character, was immortalized and became an American ideal. And after centuries of struggle and a decade of progress, a tailwind of enthusiasm had finally set the sail, hit the sails of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. And it would lead to the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. No, Dr. King would also accept the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the movement in 1964. And the possibility of making equality really seemed within reach in the mid 1960s. Now, unfortunately, we're going to meet Dr. King when that movement has slowed down dramatically, that it's met and then faces massive headwinds. Um, the, the focus of the movement has moved from simply passing laws to now dealing with the actual consequences of segregation and discrimination and the poverty and the, the, the struggle. Um, and, and solving those issues is more complicated than simply passing a law, as Dr. King talks about in many of his speeches in later years. The other thing that really undermines uh, the civil rights movement at this moment is also the Vietnam conflict, uh, which makes it complicated and, and, and turns the attention away from the civil rights movement to this uh, war in the distant land. So when we meet Dr. King by 1968, his popularity is actually at an all time low. So gone are the days where he has these soaring crowds. In fact, half of black people polled in 1967 thought he was irrelevant. Many of them, young blacks, who Dr. King's promises for a better future had not materialized. Life had not changed for them in the, in the areas that they were living. And so they were just like, they were looking for a different way. Understandably. Uh, three quarters of white people polled in 1967 saw him as a public nuisance. And most of that was because of his strong statements against the Vietnam War. Leaders within the civil rights movement like Ralph Bunch and others uh, said that King's stance on Vietnam was actually distracting from the movement and hindering further progress for blacks across the country. King was facing a lot of opposition from all sides and yet he stood his ground declaring that to allow poor black and white folks um, to be sent to Vietnam and to be killed or return maimed with severe physical and mental injuries was without a doubt a civil rights issue. And so he stood firm and that cost him so much because he was labeled as a traitor to the country and a distractor from the bigger issues of the time. So on the evening of April 3rd, and you wouldn't actually know this by the sound of his voice during the speech that we're gonna hear, but Dr. King was completely exhausted as he made his way to Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. He was in the midst of promoting the Poor People's Campaign, another march on Washington, to, to this time to advocate for interests of the poor and downtrodden of all skin colors and beliefs. And he saw, Dr. King saw this as a moment where he could actually bring people of different races together in one cause and, and begin to solve um, some of the, and heal some of the wounds of racism in society. Uh, he was also, because of his uh, schedule promoting this Poor People's Campaign, he was getting two to three hours of sleep. Um, and because, that's because he was speaking three, four, sometimes five times in a day and traveling vast distances across states to do so. Uh, when he arrives in Memphis on April 3rd by plane, his advisors actually say, go rest in the hotel and we'll take care of the speech. We'll take care of the speaking engagements for the night. You need to rest up for our march tomorrow. Um, but Dr. King, uh, is called later that evening and says, his advisors say, you have to get down there. The people really want to hear, um, you speak. Now I wanna talk a little bit about why Dr. King's in Memphis real quick, and then we'll get into um, the speech itself. 
this was a majority black black crowd made up of made up of supporters of the Memphis Black Sanitation Workers strike, um, and they were on strike because there was dangerous working conditions. Um, and sanitation workers are like garbage workers or people dealing with all sorts of just anything sanitation. Um, and the reason they were striking is they had these terrible conditions. Two um, in February, two sanitation workers had been killed in a freak accident because the machinery they were working with malfunctioned and and killed them. Um, they were also getting paid wages that were actually below the poverty level. And so they wanted um, to bring about change for themselves. Uh, and, and so they were striking to, to try to get their rights and, and get protections that you know, any human deserves. Now, the mayor of Memphis, Harry Loeb, was actually doing everything possible to prevent the strike from succeeding and adding to the tension. Um, uh, a series of unfortunate events actually happened um, that caused Dr. King's first um, protest to go bad. And, and this protest was happening in February and it actually led to the death of a black 16 year old at the hands of police. And Memphis police actually tear, threw tear gas into a protesters who had fled to a church and then came in and beat them with clubs. And the press didn't focus on that latter part. The press focused on the fact that there was actually violence and looting during the protest itself, um, which again, that, that all happened because of some weather stuff that happened. And it's a bigger story than we have time to tell now. Um, but the bottom line is Dr. King and, and the, the civil rights movement that he was leading with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference took an, yet another public relations hit. And it compromised the possibility of the Poor People's Campaign succeeding. Because um, the, the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington was scheduled to happen in May of 1968. Um, so in late March, Dr. King and some of the leaders say, we need to have one more march in Memphis. And some of the staff that they was working with reacted really violently and said, no, we can't. This is going to destroy the Poor People's Campaign. But the decision actually is made that, okay, we will return because Dr. King believed that he had started this work with sanitation workers and he couldn't just abandon them, even that, if that cost the Poor People's Campaign um, from happening. So the decision to continue to support the sanitation workers shows us what it looks like and requires us to be a neighbor. Because when things get hard and when, when someone is needing help, we always have a decision. Do I step in and help? Do I, or, or do I just decide to achieve, to achieve bigger goals? And we're gonna see that in the story of the Good Samaritan as Dr. King's gonna tell us shortly. But being a neighbor requires risk, it requires faith, it requires sacrifice, and it requires a radical reorientation of priorities that are so God-focused that they become natural reactions. Because as I said earlier, this, this whole movement is happening because a group of people is so centered on God as the center of their life that they are acting out the, the, those impulses that he's giving them. And, and their, their orientation is making his kingdom a reality on earth. So how do we get to a place where caring for our neighbors is actually as instinctual as it is for the people in this movement? And secondarily, again, who are our neighbors? Now, to be honest, creating instinctual reaction, again, requires, th th that feels overwhelming for me even to talk about. And I always wondered how Dr. King, his wife, Coretta Scott King, his colleagues, Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, Jesse Jackson, and countless others that, I, that, that we could mention here, continue to push forward for change in spite of overwhelming odds, in spite of, in spite of devastating setbacks or failures, and literal threats to their lives. 
I believe the answer can actually be found in the first passage we read in the book of James. Today, today again, we read James 1, verses 2 through 4, which explain how trials actually develop our faith. They teach us perseverance and endurance, and after enough trials, our faith is perfected. And while I'm not going to argue that these people's faith was perfect, I'm going to argue that their faith had been tested over and over again. So again, it's clear individually collectively that many groups of civil rights leaders, including Dr. King, had an inhuman ability to endure. And that's because they've had these moments of extreme doubt that then they were able to overcome. And even when things didn't go right, they still completely put their trust in God. They recentered on him, on Christ's work on the cross, on Christ's example. They prayed about it. And then they continued to act attempting to follow Christ's example of serving others and mimicking his connection to the Father. Now, again, on April 3rd, Dr. King was actually encouraging his audience to look out for the needs of others around them and to meet the needs of their day. And that was inspired by Christ's pull on his life. And so he was saying, please come stand along, alongside your neighbors, in this case in Memphis, it was the sanitation workers of Memphis. So we're going to listen, we're going to start the speech, but I want to give a little context in terms of what we missed because Dr. King, we're going to enter the speech about 28 minutes in. And again, he enters the speech exhausted, um, but he's kind of inspired at the, because the energy in the room is pretty amazing. And you'll actually kind of hear that as he's talking. But he gets a great introduction from his friend Ralph Abernathy <laughs> and makes a joke about it, talking about like, you know, Ralph saying all these great things uh, about, about this person about to speak. And I, I couldn't help thinking like, is, it, is he talking about me? <laughs> um, so he gets this great introduction and then he opens with an illustration saying that if God were allowed him to live in any period in history and he brought him to Egypt, Dr. King let, would say, let's keep going. Or the golden age in Greece, let's keep going the height of the Roman Empire, Dr. King would say, God, let's keep going. And a few others until he reached the second half of the 20th century, which is the moment in which he's speaking. And he says, I want to be in this moment with y'all because I see God at work here. He, he then goes on to explain the obstacles of injustice in Memphis. And he reminds his audience that the movement had conquered injustice everywhere and that it would pre prevail again in Memphis if everyone worked together. Dr. King then explained that they were gonna, and this is right before we're gonna enter the speech. So this is kind of the context of, of his, the, the final comments we're gonna hear, um, or the, the first comments we're gonna hear. He explained that they're gonna apply economic pressure to local and national businesses to raise awareness and garner support. And he's encouraging the crowd to invest in black banks and insurance companies to further develop black economic power. We're gonna pick up the speech at the moment where Dr. King is then imploring his audience to show up to the march, to be neighbors to the sanitation workers the next day. And I want you to listen in and hear how he invites them to take part in this march. And this is gonna take me a second to, uh, to share. So give me just a second. I'm also going to put in the chat the um, text of the speech just in case you want to read it yourself at some point. So I've dropped that in the chat. And I would put a copy of the, the audio as well if you want to listen to it later. So I'm going to drop those two things in the chat right now. 
I'm going to share my screen. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to hit play, and then you're going to hear Dr. King's speech. But I'm going to have the text that he's speaking up on the screen so you can follow along if you need to. So again, he's about to implore people to actively get involved. Can everyone hear that? Try again. Let's see. There's such a great teacher moment right here. Share sound. Okay. Let's try this again. That we've got to give ourselves to this. Can you hear it now? All right. Success. Sorry, I'm. We we, we work on teams at my school, so this Zoom thing is all foreign to me. <laughs> all right. So I'll hit play. We'll keep going. Struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We got to see it through. When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. I absolutely love that. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. I mean, how powerful is that? How, what if the church was, was classified as having a dangerous unselfishness, if that was how we were defined? So Dr. King's now going to jump and talk about the speech of the Good Samaritan, and I love the way that he frames this. He's going to kind of turn, uh, every time I've read this, I, I always kind of just dismissed the first two people that went by, but he's going to really humanize them. And he's actually going to paint them in a way that for me felt very convicting because I think I've made the same excuses that they've made at moments in my life. So I want you to pay attention to how he frames the priest and the Levite and how he shows us that we do the same things. One day a man came to Jesus he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. 
Now that question. All right, so there was a section there that uh, we lost to history. <laughs> um, it's an old recording. And so what had happened in that point was that first section that we talked about um, in Luke 10, 25 through 37, right? This is where the teacher of the law says, God, what do I need to do to interpret eternal life? Summarized, Jesus asks, says, well, what do you, what's the, what does scripture say? The guy says, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, do this and you'll live. And then the guy then goes back and says, but, but wait, who is my neighbor, right? And so that's where we're going to pick up right now. Dr. King's responding to the question, or he, he's saying Jesus could have taken that question and gotten into a big, big debate about it, but he doesn't. So that's where I want to add that in because it, that part was actually lost to history. question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on the dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, or down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. 
You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? I think there's a lot to unpack in, in what Dr. King just said, but I think there's a couple main takeaways. First is that lives are busy. We got things going on, right? And why would I stop or create time when I'm, when I'm, maybe I'm trying to solve the problem on a bigger level? The second one is sometimes there's fear that making these kind of choices requires of us giving up things. So that's time or safety or money. But the question there is, if I stop to help, if I, if I set aside time to make a difference, if I set aside time to make Christ's kingdom a reality, then, hey, Rouse, <laughs> then what will happen to me? Let's keep going because he's going to flip it on its head and, and show how our attitude needs to change. But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. That's the question before us today. If we don't stop and slow down, What will happen to people who are in need right now? And I want you to think about this in your own context. If I do not stop to help blank, what will happen to them? And this is the answer to that third question I proposed at the top of our time together. What steps do we need to take to become more Christ-like neighbors? If we want to be more like Christ, we need to be prayerful adding this question to our lives daily. If we do not stop to be more like Christ, and help blank, what will happen to them? It's a question before us as individuals. And on a broader scale, I think it's a big question for us as a church. 
And by church, I don't just mean Bethany Eastside. I mean church community in the greater Seattle area, throughout the country, throughout the world. How do we collectively live with this dangerous unselfishness that Christ showed in his life on a daily basis? And that this example of the Good Samaritan showed, and then also the civil rights workers throughout the 1960s showed. How are we living lives that are dangerously unselfish, that are sacrificial? So before I send us off to breakout rooms to consider this question together, I want to remind us that this is a place where we are working through. We have not, we are not just starting this journey from nothing, right? And, and, and but so, so we're doing something. First and foremost, as Pastor Kindred says frequently, we need to know God's word and his character. If we want to do this right. Second, we need to know each other and trust each other. You can't do this collective work together unless you trust the people around you. And that's something we're building. We have to be vulnerable. We have to have conversa hard conversations with one another and not, when our feelings are hurt, not say, this isn't the church for me and take off. We have to commit to each other, which is, which is hard. And third, as Pastor Travis talks about, we need to be involved in our community, right? And know the broader story of our society beyond. And the good news is, again, we've started this work. Showing up here each week is a start. We have Bible studies. We have retreats that, that were talked about in the announcements today. We have community partnerships. We're having big conversations about what's happening in our broader world and particularly to communities of color around us and our role in dismantling racism, both in ourselves and in society. So I wanna end um, by saying that I think we need to move more collectively and we need all of these areas to grow in maturity together and we have to commit to one another. We have to be vulnerable when things aren't going well in our lives. I know that that's really hard for me to admit that I've got something going wrong. And we need to deepen our community together because then once we've built that trust with each other and with the churches around us, then we can do that work and, and really show God's love to the world. Because that's what God asks us to do. He asks us to be in community and community is hard. And again, Christ shows this in so many aspects. He's so intimate with his disciples and honest with them. And I think we need to have that level of honesty with each other. So we're going to go into breakout rooms. As we, and as we do so, I want to again consider three questions. Now, if you're a guest here and you, you need to go do something else, please go ahead and take off. Thank you again for spending time with us. But for those that, that stick around, I want us to consider one of three questions as we go out. And you, and you can pick as a group which, which question that you want to tackle. Uh, but the first is describe a recent time when God brought to your attention an opportunity to help, um, to help a person in need. I had a typo there. Sorry, I had to fix it. <laughs> what did you do? Did you respond positively or just, did, you, did you come up short? And how did that deepen your relationship with the other or how did that challenge or faith. Second, what is an area of our world or community where you want to or need to learn more about to be ready to be God's hand and, hands and feet when the moment arrives? And third, what might you need to give up 
in order to create time or resources or energy to be a blessing to those in need and to deepen your sense of community. So those are the questions we're gonna consider. Um, let us pray before we go. God, we, we thank you for this time. Um, we thank you for your spirit and how it drives us closer into community, that it drives us closer into relationship with you and that both those things are essential um, and, and, and what all the commandments come down to. So we just ask that you would again be on our hearts as we have these conversations, that we'd be honest with each other and that um, you'd help guide us as we move throughout um, our days. With this up in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and head out to your breakout rooms. I will attempt to drop these in the chat, although I'm completely lost in my windows right now. Um,